This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. So today on the podcast, we have Sanjay Kabir Varigate. Hi, Sanjay. Hey, Sam. So could you introduce yourself to our audience? Because you probably know yourself better than we do. Let's see now. Um, yeah, consider us complete layman and just like as simple as possible. As simple as possible. Okay, that is, that is a connection to martial arts. The art form uh, is is about connecting. It's truly about connecting. It's not just only in terms of how do you connect a punch and how do you connect a kick, but it is truly engaging in that kind of a dance uh, with your op opponent. I'm not talking about necessarily a street fight where even there, there is a component of that, but essentially when you are in the dojo, when you are, uh, when you're doing your nevaza, when you're doing your tachivaja, when you're, when you're essentially sparring, so to speak, or your andori, it is a really rich conversation one is having with with one's partner. And so it isn't about winning or losing, but it's about genuinely connecting and, and seeing what is this beautiful conversation we can develop as a result of that. And I think some of the some of the best uh, matches that I have seen or the uh, randoris that I have seen has been when this connection is there. And and it's the connection that leads. It's no longer about me versus somebody else, but it's it's the harmony of the connection. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is I do a lot of work. I mean, I trained as an attorney and I do a lot of, but I started out doing a lot of work um, on environmental law and, and human rights, uh, but, but fundamentally working uh, with indigenous peoples or communities who are working on stewarding their lands, resources, and territories. And uh, a lot of what drew me to this work was what I sensed was this incredible connection these communities uh, had with, uh, with their lands or with, with the ecosystem or with the landscapes that they'd stewarded for several generations. And this connection uh, is almost, I mean, the only way to describe it is that the natural world is also a social world. And for these communities, it was a strong social connections with all sentient and non-sentient beings in their landscape. And that was what had led to these generations of, of stewardship and co-evolved ecosystems. So as an attorney, I spent 20 years doing that kind of work and representing these communities and the land claims and territorial claims, but also how they could safeguard and sustain their ways of life. And currently what I do uh, in my job is I head a foundation, it's a private foundation, and we, we, we fund a lot of uh, work with indigenous peoples uh, world over, but all of it is led, is, is focusing on, on strengthening this connection of stewardship between communities and their lands. Um, and all of these are, I think, philosophies of, of, of connection. It's how, how does one genuinely connect with things around one? Because I think for most part, you know, we tend to live our lives out as fairly isolated or closed senses of self as, as to me as a separate uh, person. And you are a person, but so much of 
life is about the dance. It's the great dance of connection. And I think martial arts tends to do that, and Japanese martial arts particularly tends to tend to emphasize emphasize the dance or the key or the chi or uh, you know. And of course, the Chinese Chinese arts as well talk about the whole thing. And uh, if you talk about Aikido or Judo, that's always the principle of how do you use these kind of energies.、Um, and so that's 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 that continues to gravitate. Me towards it because it is about understanding, tapping into, and aligning two energies that are mysterious and bigger than you, but but are manifested through you. We have so many questions for you because environmental law, from the bits we do know about it, it does seem so important, something everyone should know about, but no one's really talking about it. No one's just educating the regular people about it, at least not on any podcast I've heard. So we wanted to bring you on, so you can pretend we're kindergartners and educate us. And then, as you're explaining stuff, then we'll kind of know more, and then you could get more technical. First, let's start off with what is environmental law, and what do environmental lawyers do? Environmental law is a set of rules, could,、uh, or a framework of rules that govern the management of. The environment, the natural environment, so to speak, and so that's what environmental law is. And environmental law lawyers are practitioners of it. Now, you could be an environmental lawyer, and you could have a particular slant towards it. For example, you could be representing an oil company, or you could be representing a mining company, and essentially, you have expertise in how does one use environmental law in order to further. The the interests of your clients, or you could also be someone as a as an attorney who specializes in environmental law. But essentially, your slant could be: How do I further the interests of the natural world itself? Uh, uh, in terms of、uh, whether it is about communities who care for and tend this natural world, or whether it is it is for the for a river itself, or or a forest. How do I how do I Use the law in a way to protect and advance、uh, the interests of the natural world. So the type of law you do then seems like, or maybe environmental law in general, it tends to be more international, right? The law we're used to is more domestic, and you're handling more local things or things that would only affect us here in the U.S. But environmental law that you will practice, you're trying to practice law in different countries or with situations that might border. Multiple countries, right? Yes. So, so ultimately, any framework of rules essentially has to define who it is governing. So, it could be governing,、uh, you know,、uh, members of a particular community in a small town.、Uh, it could be municipal regulations, or it could be for an entire state, or it could be an entire country, or it could be for the comedy of nations. We have different countries, and how do we? Regulate, uh, uh, you know, our relationships with each other in the context of the living environment that we all share. So, if you look at climate change, for example, a lot of climate change-related、uh, laws,、uh, you could look at it from an international level because climate change affects everybody. So, excessive emissions by one country affects,、uh, you know, the well-being of people globally, not just in that particular country. So, you do need a framework convention, which is the Climate Change Convention. That countries sign on to, but at the same time, each individual country has specific emissions targets that they would have to meet. Which means that domestically, they've got to enact legislation to ensure 
that their emissions meet these targets, which means they may have to regulate, uh, you know, uh, industry in terms of how much it emits. So they may have to regulate how many, how much emissions you can have on your car or what, whatever it is. So they've got to do that, and it could go down specifically to a local level as well in terms of a municipality regulating what, what is needed. But all of this adds up. So me as a practitioner, uh, I I've done a lot of work internationally, but I've had to also simultaneously work. In with specific countries to say, okay, how does your national legislation harmonize internationally? What, what is it that you need to do? But ultimately, the interest that I was representing in all the fields that I was operating in, whether it was at a national level or an international level, I was representing the interests of communities on the ground and the and nature itself to say, how do I use the law or use the skills that I have to advance the interests of those who are focused on conservation and the sustainable use of the living ecosystem of which we are a part of. Each country has their own set of laws, but if that country or several countries sign off on an accord or a convention, then they have some kind of common agreement. And then you could come in and be like, okay, so according to these agreements, you can enforce things in multiple countries, right? Is that why those kind of conventions are so important to create a common um, legal ground? Yes, exactly. So, of course, I mean, in international law, every country is, is, is a sovereign, which means that uh, no other country can tell them what to do. Uh, uh, however, uh, the fact is that we, I mean, the reason why we have the United Nations is that we are all, we all, irrespective of our sovereignty as countries, we all live on planet Earth. And it is it is a kind of a spaceship, so to speak, in the sense of, uh, you know, it's got a finite set of resources and all our fates are tied to each other. So whether it's a treaty around nuclear disarmament or whether it's a treaty around climate change, as countries, we have to agree on the rules of engagement amongst ourselves. And that would be a treaty or a convention. That, that's international law. And then from there, domestically, each country would ha- then have to do the implementation, and that for that they would have to en- enact legislation domestically. So it's that it's that constant kind of balancing act between knowing that you're not the only country in the world; you are amongst you a committee of nations, and and there are rules of how you engage with each other, which is what international law kind of frames out. And then from there, within within your own country. Uh, what is the level of accountability you have to people who vote that government into power? And what is it that they expect? What is the Green Deal, for example? Or what is the expectation of the population around emissions relating to climate change? So all of this then becomes domestic that the country would have to enact. So every government has to perform this kind of balancing act between uh, upholding its international obligations and at the same time listening to its electorate or constituencies that voted into power and what they want. It kind of connects to what you were saying before about your attraction to martial arts then, because it is so complex and there's this macro, micro level of it. It is this kind of dance. Indeed, indeed. So, it, And it is a dance and you've got environmental lawyers working at multiple levels. There are people who focus primarily on the local and there are people who work at, an, at a national level and others who work at an international level. I mean, my own experience of background is that I try to do, I try to connect these different fields, I tried to 
look at what are the gains that we're making in international law, for example, uh, and then how does one translate that into domestic law and how does that kind of actually result in real benefit or change for communities on the ground? Because, I mean, ultimately, I, for me, the entire approach has been to ask myself, you know, the big question, why do I do what I do? And, and ultimately, it comes from a genuine kind of a love or connection to nature, to, to the earth. Uh, and, and the question then is, what can one do uh, to protect this? What can one do if, if I, if, for me, if my article of faith is that I am not apart from nature, I'm, I'm a part of it. And I, I am, I am, I am one among all of this. And this is, and it's these, the plants and the trees and the rocks and the rivers. I mean, these are all my kin. I have a strong relationship to all of them. And how do I protect it? I use the law to do it. Somebody else could use something else. Somebody else could, you know, do run a community garden in the neighborhood or somebody else could, you know, uh, uh, advocate for, uh, uh, you know, uh, for technology that is, that reduces emissions. But I mean, there are various ways of doing it, but ultimately this is why I do what I do. But the law then is just becomes a means to an end as opposed to an end in itself. I know we spoke at a great length about climate change, but there's many facets to environmental law. You mentioned before about biocultural diversity. Could you explain that in layman's terms for us? I mean, here's, here's how I would, I w- I've, I've understood it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, as I said, you know, the, the natural world is not just something outside there. I think sometimes, uh, you know, when, we we are we inhabit a, a time in the history of the world which which scientists refer to as as the Anthropocene, and the Anthropocene essentially is is a time when uh, when you know humans had the greatest impact on 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 the planet, just in terms of our activities have a huge impact uh, on on the planet, but. Uh, so much of how we have done, what has led us to this point where, in many ways, we are in a very precarious time, uh, uh, especially in terms of uh, what this means to the planet and, and how sustainable it is for, for the future generations. The, a lot of what has brought us to this precipice or this brink uh, is how we, if, is the change that has happened over the years in terms of how we understand our relationship to to nature, uh, whereas traditionally, with, especially with the indigenous communities that uh, or peoples that I have worked with, the relationship to nature is one of kinship, where communities don't see themselves as separate, but they see themselves as a part of it. So the bio part of it, the bio meaning you know the life, life forms amidst which they live. Uh, uh, has a cultural dimension to it, so it isn't some wild nature out there that you know you put in a national park and then you go back and live in suburbia or something like that. But your notions of self, who you are as a person, uh, and your daily practices in life—that uh, is your culture. Your you, what, what, how your culture informs who you are and what you must do and how you must live—is integrally intertwined with the rhythms of nature itself. So when I say biocultural, what I mean is that uh, it is a complex interaction between 
the culture of a people and the ecosystem within which they inhabit. And the the ethical basis of that is one of care, uh, that you truly care for these things around you simply because you don't, as a human being, you don't see yourself as top of the hill or you don't see yourself as something that stands apart in nature being only as a resource that you consume or something for aesthetic purposes that you go out once in a way and you say watch a beautiful sunset but it's essentially a part of your family and and so th- so the biocultural part of it is a lot of the work that I do today uh, is supporting these strong biocultural relationships between communities and and their lands because I feel that the future of conservation is not a kind of conservation with, without people, but rather it is with people, but people remembering their original relationships they have with nature. What it sounds like to me is the way we've kind of understood it before is we think of the biological environment as independent of people. But what you're saying is you can't understand culture or biology individually. You could only understand them together as one idea or one unit yes I, I i'm saying that i'm saying that as a normative statement i'm saying that, that that's that's the way we should be doing it mm-hmm. but in increasingly what is happening is that i think um uh, as a species uh, and and i and i mean you know not everybody but definitely the dominant understanding now seems to be the way we understand culture is almost completely cut off from our relationships to the living world. Uh, instead, culture is primarily understood as interactions between human beings. Uh, and, and But we are only one among many. Uh, we are only one species. And, and so, a lo- so the other way of doing it is to kind of say, even going back, uh, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, uh, uh, I mean, because... If, if you look at the evolution of human beings itself, I mean, I think the Homo sapien, um, uh, I mean, this uh, it's, it's the latest iteration of something that kind of goes all the way back to the Australopithecus. And this is a very, very recent uh, ev- uh, evolutionary step. But for hundreds of thousands of years before that, the, what it meant to be human was this dynamic conversation with the living world around us. It's only off late that 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 connection has been cut off. And that is what has led to this, what I call before the Anthropocene, where we have such an immense impact on the natural world, almost to not just the detriment of the natural world, but to our own detriment. So I think so much of the climate change conversations, I mean, irrespective of what side of the spectrum you're on or not, if, but if 90-odd percent of the scientific community agrees that as a species, we are facing an existential question. It's no longer about what, what do we want to leave for you know, five or six generations down the line, but over the next 40 or 50 years, everything around us is going to change so radically that there are questions in terms of how sustainable is the planet itself for not just all the species that are disappearing, but for humanity itself. You know, this reminds me of kind of a fallacy I've seen in understanding Eastern philosophy like Taoism. Yeah. And I think Taoism has a lot in common with a lot of native philosophies, a lot of indigenous philosophies. People have turned it into dualism, this Western concept of dualism. It's either or, it's this versus that. It's competitive, right? 
So even when you think of yin-yang, people call it yin and yang, as if it's two separate ideas and then it vacillates from one and the other. When the truest translation would be yin-yang as one idea is yin-yang. It's one thing. You can't understand one without the other. It's actually one compound thing. Yes. And that's what it sounds like uh, a lot of native philosophies and people, the way they understand their connection with the world. It's not man versus nature. It's man-nature. Yeah. You can't understand one without context in the other. And I think that is the truer way to understand this, especially for our own benefit of keeping the planet around. I mean, you're absolutely right, uh, Sam, because I, I think the, the great lie that, that a lot of us have grown up with is to think of ourselves as separate from uh, the living world or, 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 or nature. And, and so much of what, what we see as, um, as the psychosocial challenges that, 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 you know, that people experience, uh, you know, living in kind of urban built up areas increasingly. Uh, I think there is enough data and scientific research to show that a lot of it is a result of this, this severing of our relationship with the natural world. Uh, and, and, and so much of, uh, uh, of, of the discourse now around what does it mean to, to heal involves you know reconnecting with with nature uh and 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 i'm not i mean i know this sounds uh this sounds quite quite theoretical but what i would invite your listeners to do is um is uh you know genuine i mean to go out and spend some time in nature not as a one-off thing because the first time you you probably do it i mean i think it, 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 it the first i mean it's the experience is probably one of annoyance or you know too many bugs or you know it's too hot it's too cold or whatever it is but if one does it over a sustained period of time even over a period of 15 or 20 days where you spend a certain portion of your time even if it's an hour or two in nature in your local park or in some kind of wilderness uh it it, it dramatically changes how you feel uh and and this kind of shows i mean it this whole thing is hardwired in our DNA, uh, and and what well-being means for us is is not just well-being separate from and and I mean it's a, you know a simple little experiment would be you know if you ask people to just close their eyes and you know center themselves, take a few deep breaths, and you say imagine a, a really really peaceful place where you feel completely you know uh, at one and you feel you feel really calm and balanced. Uh, most people, you ask them to open their eyes in 20 seconds and tell you what it is. It would be a place of nature. It wouldn't be in your bedroom or it wouldn't be in a mall or it wouldn't be in a restaurant or whatever it is. And there's something there uh, around why people say that. Um, and so what I'm what I'm talking about is is connection. And, and you know, the, the link to martial arts is, is I think, um, I mean, yes, the technique is important, but a lot of that technique is about understanding how energies flow. Uh, and, um, and, and, and being able to use that well, but there are energies that go beyond the interrelationship between two people. Uh, and those are energies of, of the world itself. And I think, uh, uh, uh you know, uh, I think Morihai Usheba, you know, the, 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 the founder of Aikido, I think he talks about this a lot. He talks about these universal energies and, and I think your reference to Taoism, because Taoism is fundamentally a nature-based 
philosophy. It is about watching the rhythms and the seasons, and and how I mean. So the Tao Te Ching makes a lot of references to the way, but I think the Taoist sages. I mean, the understanding of the way is comes from seeing how nature itself works, and then you know, uh, you know, trying to then connect with the microcosm within themselves, which is actually a representation of the macrocosm they see around them. I know we spoke about the cultural challenges that we've come across when it comes to addressing biodiversity, but what are some of the legal challenges that you encounter? I, I think, I mean, so there are there are several legal challenges, but I, I mean, I, I think I'll I'll bring it down to the to the nub of or the nub of it or the heart of the matter, and and it comes down to a value uh, because so much of uh, the legal challenges. Are kind of pitched as you know man versus nature, uh, and I'll say I mean and and it, it, it it's it's never presented as as a binary as stark as that. But you take for example, uh, let's say you you take mining for example, you take coal mining for example. I mean and clearly you know it has a it has had over the years a devastating impact on on the areas where the mining has happened, and now. At this stage, it's kind of undeniable uh, what continued and excessive burning of fossil fuels is doing to climate itself, and uh, and 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 consequently through that to how we live our lives. Whether it's kind of you know increasing amount of droughts or you know excessive amount of rain in certain places, there's, there's all that all that that is happening. Now, invariably, that to mine or not to mine. Uh, as a as a question is presented as uh, either, do you want jobs or don't you want jobs right I mean so ultimately uh, and 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 I think it's a fair point I mean and because I think I think jobs are important and I think at some level everyone having having a way of life that that augments their well being is critical and I think I'm all for that but if if you don't also ask the question of what does this mean for future generations? What does this mean for the living earth? And, and what does it mean for the trees and the plants and all of that, uh, and, and the species, all of which are, who are, which are probably going to die as a result of all these changes that are happening, then you're not looking at the whole picture. Then you are making decisions primarily from an anthropocentric framework. You're saying, as people, uh, you know, environmentalists don't, you know, just want to protect the area and, uh, you know, but people who are focused on on jobs want want jobs in, 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 in mining. So, you know, that that's the entire conversation is is framed in that particular way. And and so what I would say is I would say, you know, if you take a step back and if you kind of say if, if you approach it saying that these things that, you know, we are talking about. You know the trees, the plants, the animals, all these other things. I mean, this this living world that we're talking about is not a resource that we should use. We, we we can consume endlessly. Neither is it some. Neither is it a separate resource that you know we protect a few natural parks in a few different places and then we're we're okay. But we look at it as a living world, as something that is connected to us, as as kinship. Then the conversation itself becomes different. So it isn't so much about okay, you know, what do we do about jobs, but it's about how do you create the kind of jobs that allow us to be in harmony with uh, the with the living world. And I and 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 it's always it's the with 
it's not it's not either or and that's really what it means to connect with the energies beyond us speaking on that have you seen the effects of climate change on the ground in the regions that you've been and have done projects on oh yeah definitely i mean i think that uh, that has been undeniable in terms of uh, i mean both there's there's both kind of you know uh, uh, data that has been painstakingly collected and day-to-day experiences of communities that who have spent their entire lives uh, depending on on i mean depending on on in the, almost in the sense of a real sense on on weather patterns uh, uh, and 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 whether it's in the arctic or whether it is uh, whether it is in uh, you know in places like uh, the african rift valley uh, one can see the impact one can see the impact uh, you know that uh, over the last say 20 years or even the last 30 years so i think that that is undeniable because you're already seeing species migrations because as the temperature as weather patterns in certain places uh, change i mean weather patterns in terms of sustained weather patterns therefore the climate in certain areas change entire species move uh, so you no longer so where people may have been living in a certain ecosystem and over centuries have developed a certain understanding of it based on the kind of you know plants and animals and etc that they've relied upon and once climate in these places change uh, entire species start migrating out even plants start moving so that impact is there and 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 it's it, it's interesting i mean i think um, some of your listeners may be interested in this because this it's not just in terms of then what happens to uh, uh, what happens to the ecosystem in a particular place but rather it has huge implications uh, which geop- which which are social political implications i mean one of the uh, there is definitely one school of thought and there's some research that's been done on this where you talk about i mean where the, they link the civil war in syria to to a sustained period of drought which has never happened before in syria which has kind of been linked to climate change and, and what that led to is is an increased kind of conflict more and more social protests and that kind of led to a con- that led to, there was a lightning rod there and a certain kind of riot happened. One thing led to the other and that led... Essentially, you're looking at mass migrations of people. in And and where do these people go? Where will they go? They will come as caravans or they will come as people who will seek refuge in other places. Um, and and sooner or later, uh, you know, it's going to come back uh, to your doorstep, whoever we are. I mean, for example, you know, it's, it's that... It's that, it's that always the same connection we make i mean if 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 you don't want refugees then don't sell arms to the <laughs> countries which so it's 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 the same thing i mean you can't you know it's still one earth uh, i mean there is no elsewhere i mean you can't outsource the problem to mars or whatever it is it whatever you do will have an implication because it's a fairly network well i mean there's no denying that i mean the economy is networked and you know it's uh, uh, you know, we are connected in terms of telecommunications, and we are also then always connected in terms of nature and, and life. Despite the overwhelming amount of scientific evidence, do you run across challenges maybe in the legal field or against other quote-unquote academics who challenge the climate science itself? I, it's, it's, kind of, it, it's rare. I mean, I'm sure there are people who still kind of hold a certain line on it, but, um, you know, Really, I mean, the gold standard on climate change science um, is the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I mean, this is 
the largest and the most respected body of scientists in the world that uh, that produce the evidence and the data that inform the work of uh, or the negotiations amongst countries uh, uh, within what is called uh, um, uh, you know the, the the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the Climate Change Convention or Climate Convention, um, which has had several agreements after that. So the Paris Agreement being one of the more recent kind of agreements relating to emissions. But the fact is that these decisions and these negotiations among these countries, I mean, they're not, they don't happen in vacuum. It's not based on anecdotal evidence. I mean, there is an entire legally recognized body of scientists uh, who constantly produce data based on research. In terms, and so... Uh, those who kind of break ranks with something like this, uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely a minority. I mean, I think uh, you, you know, a few months ago, uh, the uh, IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a scientific body, I mean, produced a report. I mean, wh- where they talk about the fact that uh, you know, a, uh, you know, any further kind of uh, you know increase in uh, in, uh, in in temperature. I mean, you know, you in in twenty years, you're talking about Eighty percent of the coral reefs are gone. Uh, that's a big thing. I mean, to be able to talk about eighty percent of the coral reefs gone, because you can imagine what that means for how it affects uh, marine life, and once it starts affecting marine life, how it would affect uh, you know human life and people who, who live by it. So there, I, you definitely have uh, you know people who hold out, and 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 so much of uh, the. Uh, uh, the you know the, the but you know the litigation that happens or, or or the legal arguments that kind of are related to this. I mean, I, I think lawyers rely on science or they rely on whatever else they need to rely on to win an argument. But fundamentally, um, uh, you know, increasingly courts are moving in the direction where they where they are saying that you know uh, pollution is bad. It's wrong. It's not just because it affects human life, but it affects everybody, everything around us, and so. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the fact that there is a push to conservation, or the fact that there is a, a, a push to, you know, more and more environmentally friendly law and policy, is because of an acknowledgement of this. So, um, you know, uh, it's um, the only thing I'd say is that while there are people who are resisting, and I think there is still a lot of resistance to it. Um, you know, I kind of you, know, you got to quote, you know, Martin Luther King, who said, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, I mean, the arc of the moral arc of history is is long, but it bends towards justice, and 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 it, it's the same thing with this that we've we've had this long arc, but increasingly it is bending towards justice. I mean, and which is probably why the reactions are so vociferous now, because more and more people are kind of understanding that it's not sustainable the way we live. I can't speak for other countries, but there seems to be a growing amount of skeptics, especially within the right-wing community that says, well, you can't prove that climate change is man-made. And it doesn't help that there are certain lawyers that companies, especially within the fossil fuel industries, will hire that will speak on their behalf that say, oh, you can't really prove that our company or what we're doing is causing an impact to the environment. I mean, indeed. And, 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 and that is that is the nature of any of these things that at some level, you know, uh, there is going to be a certain amount of self-interest. And, and clearly, uh, when a particular way of doing business uh, is, um, is, is affected, there is going to be a reaction to it. 
but however, uh, I think it's important to also kind of see the market trends that are that are currently uh, emerging. I mean, it's not uh, while some companies may kind of hold out, just like maybe you know tobacco companies held out for a really long time, saying you know tobacco, uh, you know smoking doesn't cause cancer, and and now we're in a very different world today in terms of how we see these things. Uh, similarly, in terms of how, for example, you know uh, what how big and burgeoning the kind of clean tech industry currently is and a lot of it is because yeah, uh, increasingly uh, you know uh, industry and business kind of understands not only the ethical importance of of doing what we do but also you know it, as more and more companies doing it that it becomes also financially viable to move in this particular direction um, so that that is definitely one thing that's that's quite obvious and you have more and more investors kind of moving in the direction of what is called uh, impact investing, where they're refusing to invest in uh, in in kind of you know fossil fuel companies, for example, and increasingly investing in companies that kind of abide by some kind of ESG standards. And uh, whereas, you know, even 10 years ago, you could say, well, but those kinds of investments don't yield the same kind of return as, you know, mainstream investments where you kind of invest in all the Fortune 500 companies uh, on the stock exchange. But you can't say that anymore because I think uh, certain certain uh, uh, funds have proven, uh, they've proven a 10 to 12 year tra- track record that has shown that more and more investors want to invest in clean companies and you can get similar or better returns. So I also feel that in one sense, it's not only communities on the ground that are fighting, but it's also consumers who are increasingly demanding certain kinds of uh, produce or products that are manufactured in a clean way. And also then several companies kind of, uh, you know, getting on board uh, with this. So, you know, it's 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 the the tide is turning, and well, well, while there may be some groups that are holding out, I don't think that this is the future. My only concern is whether we're doing this fast enough because we don't have all the time in the world, and that's what the recent IPCC report says that if we don't start making some radical kind of choices and cuts, uh, all bets are off in the next twenty years, and then it, nobody knows what happens when a system reboots. So it sounds like the general sentiment is that, and even just eyes on the ground, we could kind of see that people are caring more about the environment and more concerned about climate change and the market is adjusting as well. And what you're saying is in general, there is a consensus agreement among the experts, but we have a president who's kind of radical in that he doesn't necessarily believe in climate change or man-made climate change in Donald Trump. Now, my question is, is his view or in his capacity as president when he doesn't sign on to the Paris Climate Accord or he himself is, you know, basically a denier of climate change, is that disruption more symbolic then because everything is moving that way or he as a president does affect uh, the fight against climate change? I mean, he he definitely does. I mean, if the United States kind of says they're going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, I mean, it it it, ha- it definitely has implications. But on the on the other hand, uh, you know, I mean, and I and I and I'm a bit of an optimist here, and I'd like to kind of see what are the things that that you know, 
in in a federal system like the United States, what are the things that the federal government ha- doesn't have that much control over on certain things? I mean, if you look at California, where we where we both are in, I mean, this is the state. It's the seventh. It's 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 probably the sixth or the seventh largest economy in the world. And uh, you know, Governor Jerry Brown recently, uh, you know, I think it was in September uh, last year, he organized. Uh, uh, the uh, the global climate action summit in California, where he says, well, "Fine, if the if the if the federal government wants to kind of withdraw from the Paris Agreement, as the state, we will hold we will have a climate summit where we're going to invite, uh, you know, uh, big investors. We're going to invite activists. We're going to invite uh, industry. We're going to invite invite a variety of players to make our own commitments towards it." So I I I kind of I think uh, what I would say is. I mean, clearly fine. I mean, I think uh, if uh, if the president uh, has a particular point of view, and it's 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 a. I mean, when, when you because uh, the whole question is again. I mean, if you frame the question of do you believe in climate change or not, I mean, we're still kind of in the realm of of, of belief, uh, and uh, and and you know to be to deny essentially is to be is, is say that you know even though 86 or 87% of the sci- of scientists in the world agree that this is what it is i will still hold out for for reasons best known to me the question then is what what happens because markets will change because you know what people insure what they're unwilling to insure what tech companies are increasing time trying to move towards all of that is changing so investors will follow suit Consumer behavior is is also increasingly changing, and at the same time, you have a huge amount of activism that's happening on um, uh, on the on the ground. Because I mean, you know, the treaties that we have, uh, these international treaties, whether it's the Climate Change Convention or the Convention on Biological Diversity, etc. I mean, this is a result of several years of bottom up organizing, and so so while a president with a particular term limit may come. And speak to a particular section of the electorate to say, "I don't believe in this or I don't believe in that." As as we have seen now, I mean, and 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 I think it's becoming increasingly obvious with the kind of shutdown that's that's happened. There are limits to presidential power because we live in a networked world. So you could say that. I mean, you could be like King Canute and you could sit on the shore of the sea and say, you know, "I command the waves not to come," uh, you know, and wet my feet. But uh, uh, you know, as I said, you know. Uh, the, it's the long arc of history. It's it's what you're saying is is more uh, 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 as I said a kind of a reaction to a tide that is coming towards you, and there's very little you can do. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. Uh, you know, coal, for example, is getting hammered in the market, uh, and which is why even countries like India, which had initially kind of you know committed to building several more coal-fired plants. Have kind of decommissioned are decommissioning or pulling out of coal simply because solar has gotten so much cheaper. Uh, so what I'm saying is that these things change. I mean, it goes back to you know it's as the means of production change, the relations of production change, and and so people could say what they say, but I I feel that you got to look at uh, uh, look at what is the tendency or what is in which direction it's moving. But I want to bring this back uh, to the to the original point we were making is that. A lot of this stuff may sound super abstract to people to say, okay, someone could say, you know, I have, you know, I could, I, I could, you know, I could be someone who is running a dojo somewhere, or I could be someone, uh, you know, who's, who's a software programmer. But uh, so what, all this is all the big stuff, but I, I live in, you know, uh, 
in San Francisco or I live in Los Angeles or I live in New York. I live in the city. I've got my day job. I, I, I have a full life. And of course, okay, I try to eat organic or I try to buy in places where it's ethically sourced, but that's that's as far as I can go. So what else can I do? And I, I say that, you know, don't discount how ultimately a lot of this comes from the kind of relationship one one has with something that they value. So I would I would say whether it's with your children or whether it's with yourself. It's it's important to really kind of reinforce your connection to nature, and once you do that, then you'll start seeing little things that you need to do to protect the living, uh, 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 the living environment uh, around you. Uh, you know, you take for example parents and, and and kids. I mean, you. I mean, everybody's got. I mean, several. I mean, you know, people have children, and uh, you could you could make you could ask the big question of what can I do about the public education system? I'm just you know, one person with two kids living somewhere. But you the reality is that you truly love your kids and you'll do anything for them. And, and you will try as far as possible, even that little school where your kids go to, to try and make sure that they've got the best education possible to the extent you can afford. And it's the same thing with your relationship with, with nature. Uh, you know, wherever you're living, whatever it is, if you can do your bit to protect and to sustain and to connect, uh, then that adds up to something much bigger uh, and so that's that's what i would i would say in terms of the connection that i said right at the beginning that to reinforce these connections become really important and that's environmentalism at an individual level to just have an idea of how much things have changed in our previous conceptions about challenges to biocultural diversity you know we worried more about in the past maybe in the 90s or in the early 2000s more about urban encroachment we thought that was the biggest threat would you say now we're at a tipping point where that's also a threat, but maybe climate change has surpassed that as the more existential threat? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think climate change becomes an existential threat simply because the the, the current understanding of climate change and what science says is that you've got a clock ticking. So there is it's not so much in terms of how far how long can we push this, but you know uh, how much time do we have left? Uh, you know, before certain things start happening, where things completely get out of our control, uh, so so that climate change becomes the existential threat. But really, uh, I think uh, the place where what I do on a daily basis is, I I acknowledge that, but the, I kind of bring it back down to so therefore, what is it that we could do to address? A larger threat like that. Okay, now some people could say, okay, fine, you know, we must invest more and more in in clean technology or in technology that is going to, you know, whatever, you know, suck uh, this much carbon dioxide out of the air or, you know, electric cars, all that other stuff, and uh, or or you know, more and more solar uh, powered houses, and and there is a, a a really important place for that, but. The place where I'm also kind of pushing at is to say that, uh, you know, to also support, uh, you know, people or groups or communities that that have for generations, uh, you know, taken care of, of these uh, 
of these ecosystems that we all benefit from because these are the lungs of the world uh, and these are the carbon sinks. So, for example, if you look at indigenous peoples, I mean, you know, they constitute about 3% of the world's population, but their territories host about 80% of the world's biological diversity. So there's something to be said, said about that. And I, and I would say that what people living in urban areas can learn from these communities is the fact that to reestablish their connection with with nature and so even if it means whatever it is your local park or your local uh you know how you live your life i think try to live live your life mindfully where it reinforces that connection as opposed to saying i've lived my life and i have nothing nothing to do with with nature around me i think also and this isn't really a question it's for the listeners because you mentioned earlier about syria and some of the environmental influences of that war if people want to look that up, they could also look up something like Darfur, which was even before Syria, that led to a lot of, you know, actual people fighting and killing each other. So we might start seeing more of that in the future if this keeps getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I mean, you know, scarcity leads to consequences of some sort. And at, at some level, you know, economics is, is the science of scarcity. I mean, you know, it's a thing of gold would not be precious if we all had gold to spare. I mean, the fact is that it's limited resources and there are people who are who, who demand it. But, but the resources that we talk about, the commons or, or the public goods, so to speak, clean air, water, all these other things, we take them for granted. And so for most part, you know, historically business as usual is to kind of internalize profits and externalize costs. And costs are externalized onto, you know, in, 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 into, into, into nature is to say, okay, fine, you know, it doesn't cost anything to pollute or it doesn't cost anything to, you know, overuse water. But once these things become scarce resources, it will have implications. I mean, you know, where, whereas for people, you know, thinking about Darfur or Syria and the conflicts that are resulted result of scarcity of resources may be a bridge too far. You take, for example, you know, Beijing or New Delhi. I mean, these are highly populated cities but increasingly, you know, the levels of air pollution are so high that, you know, schools have to shut down, uh, you know, frequently because, you know, uh, it, it affects uh, you know, children's health if they, if they go out. And, and, and what, what does this really mean as a social problem? Uh, because environmental problems are never in just environmental problems. They become social problems and they become political problems and they also then consequently become economic problems. Uh, so what does it mean? For the health industry, what does it mean for all? This? So I, I, I think that's that's why I feel that we need to have a much more holistic approach to how we think about nature, because as long as we see ourselves as separate from it, we we think whatever happens there doesn't affect us. But the reality is that it affects all of us because we are a part of it. When thinking about scarcity, there's a saying, an Asian saying that goes: loss of food, loss of minor problems; no food, one problem. And it becomes just one major problem when you have a, a resource like water and you don't have it anymore. That's their only problem. And it's going to get to become a very big problem. And then it could get very hostile and violent. And I think that's the aspect of scarcity that people don't realize when it becomes the one problem. You know, we don't have luxuries like freedom anymore. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, and, and ultimately, uh, the, the, the problem comes in because the role of governments, whether they like it or not, uh, is 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 around regulating resource allocation. And if if the resource starts becoming more and more scarce, then 
how do you do it? I mean, already you kind of see high levels of inequality is probably also linked to kind of resource allocation in terms of, you know, how much you tax, who you tax, that kind of stuff. And so much elections are won or lost based on that. So you can imagine if certain other resources become increasingly scarce, what, what the consequences of that are. I mean, you've seen that in several countries already. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's only a matter of time before, you know, the chickens come home to roost. You mentioned a little while ago about indigenous people and speaking on the topic of resource allocation, what kind of rights do they have? And is exploitation a big, I don't want to say factor, but how much exploitation are they suffering? So there's been about 30 years of activism that in, uh, uh, you know, that in 2007 led to the United Nations adopting the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so essentially it's a framework, it's, it's a General Assembly resolution that, that acknowledges Indigenous people as a people having a set of rights. And so much of the, I mean, a lot of the rights, it, it, it's, it's linked to cultural and territorial self-determination, but essentially say that they, they have rights to, the, to their territory. So that was a that was a big uh, you know landmark moment uh, for indigenous peoples and and if you look at the kind of rights framework we have in international law which kind of late, translates to domestic law you've got uh, you've got individual rights which is you know your civil and political rights the universal declaration of human rights and then you have uh, the socioeconomic rights which is the kind of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, Covenant on, on economic, social, uh, and, and and social rights. So you've got, so you all of these are, are rights that individuals have, but when you come to indigenous peoples, it's 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 the only group that that is a recipient of these kind of group rights because the sense of identity or self is 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 linked to place and uh, and community. Uh, so. Indigenous peoples do have these rights, and and as a result of that, there's been a much greater advance uh, in terms of indigenous people kind of claiming that they have rights to the territory. So any kind of activity that happens on their lands require what they call um, uh, a free and prior informed consent. That is that co- that communities would have to give consent to, uh, you know, activities. So previously, uh, you know, the lands of, of many of these communities could be considered as just kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of a terra nullius kind of a thing that no, it belongs to nobody. It's just these people who are just, who've just been living there. And so the governments can give leases or contracts to any company to do whatever they wanted, but not so anymore. And uh, so especially if you look at uh, the decisions that have been coming about out of the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, which is which is the regional court that uh, has been set up under the ages of the Organization of American States, where several countries are are, are members of it, uh, you start seeing that courts are recognizing that you know communities have rights to their rights. So you're right, uh, where on the one hand you still have a push into these lands simply because resources are becoming more and more scarce and you know people are people can't come and drill or mine you know in in the financial district in San Francisco they still need to find places where they can continue to do it uh, but on the other hand uh, you know communities are pushing they they're fighting they're advocating for rights i mean the recent brazilian elections is a, 
is an example of uh, this kind of a uh, of 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 the point of conflict where uh, in the Amazon, I mean, the Amazon is considered you know, almost like lungs of the planet. It's 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 a, it's, it's critical for all of us. Um, and uh, now the current the, late, the new president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, has now kind of s- said that you know it's it's open season again for companies to kind of start uh, you know uh, getting getting into the Amazon for for resource extraction. And indigenous people, of course, are kind of fighting back. Um, and and but but the the fact that people are fighting back uh, shows that people are indigenous peoples are really aware of what their rights are, and uh, and and you know when when it when a community you know is aware of their rights, they realize that uh, they're no longer victims; they are they're rights holders, and when they're rights holders, they they are a threat. Uh, they will they will stand up for themselves and they will fight and and I think that's what they're doing and I, and what I would conclude with saying is that the indigenous people's struggle is not only a struggle of for for indigenous peoples uh, it is a struggle for all of us uh, for the whole of humanity because we will all benefit uh, from this and we will all suffer uh, as a result of a loss of of the living world. I completely agree and. There's so many good points you're making. One thing I wanted you to speak on is this concept of property rights or ownership. Uh, in the U.S., it's become like water, right? Where it's ubiquitous, where we've always had it. It's always around us. So we don't even know what it is or how it works or how we would even define it. And you talked about this in your book, Stewarding the Earth. But what is ownership in a legal sense and who decides? And also, what is the indigenous perspective? Because initially to indigenous people, private property must be like trying to say you own the air. It's like, what? You know, because if I really think about it as an alien, like if I didn't buy into all the schemas that we, you know, buy into now, it is a very weird concept to come upon something that nobody's owned for, you know, millions of years, billions, whatever. There is no ownership. And then somebody plots a post there and says, it's mine now. Yeah. I mean, and I, 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 you're right. I mean, one of the things I was trying to kind of explore um, uh, in my book um, is, I mean, when people think of property, when they think of property rights, um, you know, the popular conception, or at least the lay conception of it, um, is a sense that um, is, is is a sense of absolute, uh, you know, unmitigated control over something, but. The right to property, even historically in Anglo-American jurisprudence, has never been like that. Uh, uh, we we've never had absolute right to property. What we've had is okay, okay. People may have title to it, but they have at least when it comes to land, uh, they have a specific set of rights. Uh, so, for example, uh, you take for example the 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 house that you live in and you could say well this is my yard i'm going to drill for oil here but you will not be allowed to do that because you live in a neighborhood you live in a community there are restrictions on the exercise of your rights and it's based on what as a community or as a neighborhood you agree together so first i mean first off i think we've got to acknowledge that that Private property rights, at least when it comes to land, uh, are never absolute rights. They are always limited rights. But essentially what, what you have is that you have 
a set of entitlements to what you could do there and what it belongs to and so on and so forth. And so we 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 come from there. And when 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 we talk about say indigenous peoples, uh, uh, you know, I think historically, it's it's almost a bit of a paradigm shift where you say you no longer say the land belongs to me, but it starts from the perspective of I belong to this land. So you see yourself as a part of something and you have a set of stewardship obligations. You have a set of duties to that land. Uh, you know, uh, you know. some years ago, I mean, she passed away recently, but some years ago, the Nobel Prize in Economics was given to uh, you know, a woman called Eleanor Ostrom. She's American. Uh, and a lot of her work was around uh, uh, what, she, what she called, you know, caring for the commons. And she understands commons as, uh, as uh, you know, common pool resources, where, you know, for example, a pasture land or, for example, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, a community piece of land uh, or, or a river or a lake or whatever it is that several people have interest in. And this, these people form a community. Now, she was responding to a dominant hypothesis at that point in time, which was called the tragedy of the commons. And this was propounded by another kind of, uh, you know, theorist at that point in time called Garrett Hardin. And, Gar- and Garrett Hardin's idea of the tragedy of the commons was that if you have, if you have a resource that is shared amongst many people, human beings are, you know, are, at least his understanding of human beings were, were that human beings tend to be rational maximizers of self-interest. So, you know, that each human being will try to maximize whatever they can get out of it. So what what then they, they, they tend to do is that everybody tries to take as much as they can out of that shared resource or that shared grazing pasture or that lake or whatever it is. And sooner or later, the entire uh, uh, resource collapses or gets overused. So his solution or response to that is that you, the best thing to do is to privatize the resource where then people will act in self-interest. So whoever owns that air thing is going to kind of care for it or you, you, you nationalize it or, you know, the state takes over in the benefit of all. Now, what Elinda Rostrom did was through years of painstaking research where she and several other researchers proved that communities for generations have cared for and sustained shared resources, which they did not own or which the state was not managing. And especially and in times when, when these things got privatized or it took over by the state, the resource actually got collapsed. But really then, but how did communities do that? Because they had a set of rules that they all abided by. And they said that we have a set of duties to using this in a particular way that it not only benefits all of us, but several generations after that. And she lists out what the criteria were for these communities to sustainably manage these resources. I'm using this example to show that human beings, I mean, we respond to the cultures that we live in. We, I mean, we are, we are, we're not outside of history, but we're not, we don't always work as rational, um, as maximizers of self-interest. We also have other altruistic tendencies where we say we could care for certain things, we could use certain things collectively for the benefit of all. So you take a local dojo, for example. Uh, yes, I mean people may pay membership dues, but if it is, if there is a if there is a strong culture in the dojo, everyone pitches in to care for the dojo. Not you, you just don't go there and say, okay, I've done with my training, so you know. I'll I'll probably just kind of slam the door and walk out, or if you know if the mat is torn, I don't I don't care. But people start caring for something that they all 
benefit from. And so that's, I think that's the point I'm trying to make about property that, you know, we always kind of think of property as something that is like real estate. But uh, what, if you don't see it as real estate, if you don't see it as something that's kind of, you know, fungible like that, but if you see it as land, there are various examples of people who have real connections to these things and who care for it. It doesn't matter that they have title deed to it or not, but it matters to them that this is something that they belong to and that they care for. Their ancestors have been buried here. They've had memories here. They've had a life here. And so that so that's my response to the kind of private property approach to say that, firstly, private property isn't how people commonly understand it. There are always restrictions on, on private property. But secondly, uh, you need we need to kind of get that out of our head that if it is my that what what does mine really mean, uh, and 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 one of the things that I've argued in the book is to say that if you can care about something, then to some extent, then you have certain obligations to it and you have certain rights to it. Um, and I mean, I'll conclude with this. I mean, there's there's this famous story of of, of King Solomon where. Uh, yeah, you know these two women, um, uh, you know, come come to him with the ba- with a baby, and they're they're fighting over it because each woman claims that the baby is hers, uh, and uh, there's no way to determine whose baby it is. I mean, this is the time before DNA tests, and so Solomon comes up with this you know wise idea where he says, "All right, okay, fine. I can't seem to make a decision, but, uh, but as to whose baby it is, so why don't we cut the baby in half and eat if you get half a baby." And one woman agrees to that, and the other woman says, "You just cannot do that. Uh, uh, you know, let the other woman have the baby, but let the let the baby live and let the baby be whole." And Solomon then says, "Well, this she is the true mother of this baby because a real mother would never kind of uh, allow her baby to be cut in two. But that's the, that's the principle that we're talking about here. It is that it is a principle of care. So instead of thinking of things like you know." the way we would think about things in California where we're real estate obsessed and we just want to own stuff and make passive income. It's better to think of it less as real estate when we're thinking about land and our environment, because to your point, it really is a commons. Like if I pollute my backyard and it seeps into the ground, how does that not affect everything else? And that is something if we spend some time thinking about it, maybe it's a conclusion we could come on our own. But we don't really ever spend time thinking about our environment. We just take it for granted. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's that's really what it is. Because ultimately, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of stand in a soapbox here to say, okay, you know, eliminate private property. But what I am saying is that is that there are certain things that are public goods. And by public goods, what I mean is that, you know, it belongs, everybody's well-being relies on that and it, and it belongs to everybody and so everybody has a stake in it it's not about you know what what can i as a company do because this is my land or that i've got a lease here but everybody has a stake in it because everybody can and everybody should contribute to the care of it so and i think that's really what what the best kind of cities are i mean even if you talk about urban areas i think the be- the best cities are cities where people feel that it's their city it belongs to them and they care for it and they pitch in and they and they participate in community activities that care and grow the city but if if people start seeing a city as primarily a place where you know it's like a 
uh, it's a place where you kind of come and work and you do your thing and you and you take your money out and then you you're out of it uh there is no life it's 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 lifeless and everybody knows the difference between a city where people feel that it belongs to them or a town where they feel that this is their town and they are the community versus something that is purely looked at as something to consume and use um and and that's the thing i mean i think we're talking about soul here and uh and really we're talking about the relationship and that's why it comes back to the original point i made about connection because all these things are about a sense of connection that is beyond yourself it's not just about acquiring or saying it belongs to me but asking the question of what do i belong to uh and when you ask that question uh then suddenly uh uh you no longer you're not surrounded by ghosts but you have ancestors and you have community and you have all of these other things and you're not just an individual um uh you you're you're a part of a community so we covered a lot of things ranging from like you mentioned public goods biodiversity and climate change but a question i had for you is what is traditional knowledge and in your perspective how has that been exploited traditional knowledge one of the things is i mean i think um traditional knowledge is not traditional because it's ancient i mean it is ancient also but really uh i mean because traditional knowledge is, is something that's quite dynamic what what i'm what i mean by traditional knowledge is um is also the system of knowledge production how knowledge is 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 produced uh and in the context of of say indigenous peoples the kind of traditional knowledge we talk about is a knowledge that comes from this close dynamic interaction or conservation uh, or conversation people have with the ecosystem and 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 what they discover and learn as a result of that and a lot of that is done in a community context it's less about a researcher going off by himself or herself uh you know by themselves and discovering something but it's something that that belongs to everybody that is produced by everybody that is built with different generations adding pieces to it and it's dynamic and it continues to evolve in communities it, it never kind of stops at any time so that's broadly traditional knowledge that I'm, I'm speaking of and uh when we talk about exploitation of traditional knowledge I, i mean i think a lot of it has had to do with how you know we all rely on on this kind of traditional knowledge whether it's in terms of you know phytopharmaceuticals or cosmetics or food i mean the entire kind of food systems that we we rely on i think has been the result of the kind of land races that have been developed by communities the 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 meat that we rely on is about the kind of breeds that have been developed by people of course now increasingly we have more and more monocultures because a lot of our food is produced by big agri businesses and it's kind of focused on efficiency uh but uh a a, a lot of the food a lot of the medicine uh uh that that we rely on and we continue to rely on the leads come from uh from from communities and so that's what i mean in terms of traditional knowledge um and and uh and that is that is really the issue today in terms of when we talk about biological diversity we are moving into an era where with this kind of species loss and 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 greater and greater focus towards kind of production and efficiency that we're losing the kind of diversity of for example crops or we losing the kind of diversity of breeds etc that we have and this becomes a really critical question in the context of say climate change because if we uh if we start losing this kind of genetic diversity uh uh sooner or later it becomes virtually impossible to kind of adapt 
to changes that are happening because suddenly you've lost different kind of uh, varieties that that facilitate this kind of ad- uh, adaptation so i think i mean i'm kind of getting a little bit into kind of deep science here but i what i'm trying to kind of point out is that our well-being uh, even for a lot of us who live in cities we 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 are constantly consuming whether it's in terms of food or it's in terms of medicine um we're constantly consuming things that are taken from nature which are which have a basis in a certain kind of a genetic diversity and as that we so as that kind of gets narrower and narrower and as species are losing we we're actually starting to kind of chop down the tree of life itself and there will be consequences as a result of that would an example of this be like if a pharmaceutical company or maybe an entrepreneur goes to a certain region and the indigenous people you know are willing to share their medicine or their knowledge with this person and then they take it back and create a you know a wonder drug or create some health food thing and then uh you know completely exploit that land and take all the resources but not only that also leave the indigenous people with nothing like they're starving and you know uh you know there's urban encroachment and they're not sharing any of the profits is that kind of uh an example of how traditional knowledge can be exploited well that's definitely that's definitely one example and that happens a lot i mean that's kind of called biopiracy i mean it happens a lot because you know definitely with phytopharmaceutical the cosmetics etc you know your r&d budget is kind of you know cut down by 3/4 if you have a lead that's already coming so you know if you want to kind of find a uh, uh you know uh, uh, a bioactive compound that that acts against you know cancer or or you know or acne or whatever it is I mean we know very little taxonomically of the living world and so instead of kind of going and screening every possible plant that you can think of which would take you know millions and millions and millions of dollars and a lot of time you could go start asking you know what is that people have used in this area uh, that when they have a certain kind of inflammation or when they have and and sooner or later you start saying okay this this is the plant that people have used and so then you could go and you could kind of extract the bioactive compound and then you could kind of turn that into a drug or a cosmetic or you know a, a, a nutritional supplement or whatever it is that you do so yes so in in one sense uh, there's a huge reliance on that and i think a lot of communities are demanding that there is some kind of a benefit sharing that comes in because you are relying on knowledge that that a community has 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 developed and has held uh, and and but i think the real so that that's a big part about what does it mean to take the consent of a community before you do that and share the benefits with the community but i think the real issue goes beyond that to the extent of uh what does it mean to take something from the commons from people who have kind of used and shared it uh and built it up and then produce something as a result of that and then privatize it and when i say privatize it i mean then you secure a patent over it and then you say now this belongs to me yes i've invested a certain amount of research in research and development and now therefore the final product therefore belongs to me uh, because i've invested all of this and it actually becomes unaffordable to the people who had originally kind of produced it and i think i and i think this is the issue of of privatization where i think we do understand there's one argument to say okay we don't allow people to kind of privatize it there's no incentive to do this kind of work but on the other hand you see entire communities of people who who develop and produce all kinds of art and 
and and and food and and medicine etc without any of this kind of incentive that comes from privatization but how do you find the middle ground of you incentivize people to invest and 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 develop these drugs and foods and all of that but also kind of make sure that you don't privatize it in a way that it's inaccessible to the people or large numbers of people who need it who can no longer afford it but also then how does something go back to the communities that produced it but and and the and the connection all of this makes to go back to is that we are really not separate from this i mean everything we eat we drink uh, that we take when we when we are ill uh, that we use on a daily basis all of this goes back to nature and so we are no matter how what we think we are highly highly reliant on the ecosystem and it is this ecosystem that we got to protect because really without it we wouldn't be who we are well you you asked a question just a couple of minutes ago about well how do we incentivize these behaviors out of these big companies or maybe they're medium companies whatever companies that come in and just kind of exploit traditional knowledge how do we uh, incentivize them to act as good actors i think that i mean it's it's already happening in several places because it it's essentially i think it's a two-pronged approach i mean you do need clear legislation that that makes it illegal or, or or criminalizes this kind of behavior where you go you take something that belongs to somebody else and then uh, and then you kind of do you you invest in research and then you privatize it i think you have increasingly you have sufficient legislation around that uh, you know under the convention about the diversity you have something called the nagoya protocol on access and benefit sharing that does that in several countries now have laws that prohibit uh, that 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 kind of behavior uh, uh but but on the other hand you are also you can also incentivize it because um here i'm talking about traditional knowledge but the whole idea of of bio trade or fair trade comes comes from this where it's consumer demands a consumer behavior that forces companies to 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 source ethically to source uh from places where they don't uh they don't devastate the place where it's taken from and consumers are willing to uh, uh to pay for it uh, demand for these kind of products um and and you know ultimately uh and that's the true cost of something you know because i think a lot of what we call cheap food is subsidized food but if you really put back all the costs that are externalized on the government or taxpayer back on the ledger you realize that uh, you know uh, something that is produced ethically or sourced ethically is and what you pay for is the real cost of it uh and that ultimately flows back to the community so i think it's both consumer demands of how companies behave activism on the ground where communities saying well you can't do this anymore we have our rights to kind of legislation that that makes certain kinds of behavior uh illegal i think all of that would lead to this the necessary kind of incentivizing now for us because this is your world and you you know you're used to certain jargon so we might not be understanding a lot of these terms the same way one of the things i noticed you were saying was stewardship right as opposed to just using the common term that most of us are more familiar with which is conservation and so what i'm understanding from what you're saying is stewardship is more of you and the land working in concert whereas conservation might be just this old idea of hey just uh you know buy up this amount of land and just say people can't do stuff on it and we're going to conserve that land 
It, would you say that is the difference between stewardship versus conservation? And maybe stewardship is a better way or a more helpful way to think about it. Yes. And I think of what I'm also kind of saying uh, is that what, what stewardship does is, is it recognizes a culture of care, of, 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 of seeing something that you're a part of and, and caring for it. And I think what I'm saying around conservation, the traditional notions of conservation was primarily a separate kind of a fines and fences approach where you fence off an area of land and you find people who kind of go into it and that kind of stuff. But really, I mean, I think the kind of world we live in, it's, it's, we, we don't have kind of that many lands that are completely uninhabited. There are people who have been living there, who've been taking care of it. So the culture of stewardship is to say that we all have an obligation firstly, but, but then the kind of communities who have been living there and taking care of it have a set of rights. And, and that has to be recognized. Uh, it can't just be that either it's a national park or it's open season. But rather, you have to start recognizing these indigenous and community-conserved areas and and then protect them because they belong to all. Uh, I mean, they benefit everybody. So it's not just about a conservation; just buying some land, and it's like set it and forget it. We can't just set it and forget it. We it's a constant responsibility. It's a constant responsibility, and it's 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 also everybody's responsibility. Um, so, uh, and I think that's the question. I think that's the thing that I think. Uh, all of us have to start grappling with uh, what, how does our lifestyle, how does our behavior, what do we do uh, that that is in, able to embody and and a culture of stewardship. It sounds like you have a lot of natural optimism, but come on, like with everything that you know, how do you not get majorly depressed working in this field? I mean, yes, it's it's hard, but on the other hand, uh, one of the things. I think I would ask anyone to do who's kind of getting jaded in this is um, is is to actually go out and spend some time with people who are doing this on a day to day basis, um, and 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 that's the, that's the thing. I mean, in 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 the sense of while you're fighting, people are fighting against great odds. Um, it's also important to start seeing the successes. Uh, I mean, this is not a losing battle. I mean, this is something where, of course, I mean, we're on the clock. But on the other hand, there are great successes and there are lots of people doing some really, really amazing work. So in one sense, uh, you know, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely saying that, yes, things are bleak. Uh, there is definitely the pessimism of the intellect, but you have to have the optimism of will because there are lots of people out there who wake up every morning and do it, and they're doing amazing work. And and in many ways, I think I think they are uh, they are also succeeding. So um, I I feel two things. I mean, I think I think it's important to have faith, and I think it's important to be realistic to say that it's not. I mean, there are actually real successes that are happening out there in the world. And and finally, um, you know, your work has to has to stem from love. That uh, that uh, you know, uh, if you love something, you'll go out and do it. You take, for example, you know, there's that there's that uh, statistic that that goes around in, in martial arts circle is that you know, it's like only um, uh, the drop. What is the dropout rate? Uh, uh, you know, if you're looking at you know a black belt from someone who kind of starts, you say you know, ninety five percent of the people who start something don't 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 get to that that's a huge dropout rate but 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 people still 
you know, a lot of people, including you, I mean, you still go out and, and you train. I mean, you're not jaded by that kind of statistic because you you knowing you know that what you do is you do it because you love it and it's important. And I think that's the whole point to cultivate that kind of love. Where from that love, uh, you know, things will happen by itself. And that's what I mean when you say you align with the great energy, then you you connect to the great mystery, and then that will carry you. It's not all on your shoulders. Uh, you just have to, you know, uh, catch the wind. You have to align your sail in a way to catch that wind. Yeah. Cultivate the love. Cultivate the love. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Sanjay, you are a true martial artist, I think, in the biggest sense, which is trying to cultivate the love and trying to get others to cultivate the love, but also defending and protecting our commons, our greatest commons, which is this whole planet and this whole, you know, biosphere that we live in. So thank you for coming on the show. And are there any resources that you think are helpful online that people can learn more about all this work? You know, one of the things that I was always kind of, that that, that really, really influenced me was, uh, uh, you know, uh, Henry David Thoreau's book, uh, Walden. I kind of uh, invite uh, people to read that. It talks about this kind of, you know, the connection uh, to nature. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and watch the movies, etc. You know, and, uh, there, are, there are so many great movies that speak of these kind of connections. So what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be a purely intellectual exercise. But most importantly, I'd kind of say, you know, go out and spend time outdoors and really spend time and, and, and start trying to get, you know, connect, connect to that thing. And it takes time, but when when you do, you'll see what it means to to really to really love something. And uh, yeah, and and you know, as martial artists, I mean, that's the thing, right? I mean, ultimately, uh, it's not valueless. It is based on the value of of being a warrior for what is right, for standing up for something in your own life or in the, in your community. And that's what it is. And you know, this is your community, the the planet, and the planet asks its asks you know people to stand up for it as as warriors. Uh, so I invite the martial artists to do that. I mean, you know, in your own little way. Here's what we can do: is um, maybe you could email me some of the movies and books that you think are influential, and a lot of the books and other links that you mentioned throughout this talk. I'll add it all to the show notes. And other than that, that's it. Thank you, Sanjay. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, guys.